Good job, guys. Thank you for leading us. Let's, uh, let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you do um, use us. And Lord, truly, may that be our prayer, that we would be a vessel that uh, is useful in your hands, a people that proclaims your truth, a, a people who loves the world as you do enough to share the truth of your saving grace. God, we pray that you would uh, move in our hearts and minds. Help us to better understand our role in your work. Help us to better understand you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A couple of weeks ago in, uh, in Port, in our college uh, group, I, uh, uh, we usually have some sort of mixer question, and I asked, I asked them, if you could meet one person, uh, alive or dead, and spend some time with them, who would you pick? And I quickly added an addendum to that and said, it can't be a biblical character. Um, because I think we all as believers, you know, if there's someone we could meet from the Bible, you know, that would be amazing to be able to just talk with them, find out what they were thinking at a particular moment or what's going through their mind, you know, when God does this big, huge thing in their midst, you know, what's going on with you and what were you, what, what did you mean, you know, maybe for Paul or, or Mark or Matthew, what did you mean when you wrote that? What, what, what exactly were you getting at? Because you know, there's some disagreement there. But what, what were you getting at? You know, those sorts of questions. We, those are things that intrigue us. We, we read the Bible. We know the characters. We know the individuals that are there. You know, we, we know the stories. We, many of us have heard them from childhood on up, you know, raised uh, in the church, raised with parents who would tell us those stories and so forth. And even those of us who, that's not our experience, we, we have come across these stories in a variety of circumstances along the way. How well do we actually know the individuals? You know, some individuals we get a little bit more insight in than others. Um, but for instance, Paul. How well do we know Paul? We know some of the stories, obviously, involved. We know the shipwrecks. We know the challenges, the stonings, the, the, the different interactions that he had. But what was he like? What was his personality like? Today, we're going to start a, a series in the book of Philemon. And Philemon is probably, I could be wrong here, but I would imagine it's probably the most overlooked of all of Paul's letters. It's, it's just not one we spend a lot of time in. You know, we, we like Romans, you know, with its explanation of salvation and the fact that we're more than conquerors. Or Ephesians that calls us to unity, tells us that there's there's one one truth, one God, one Father over us all. You know, we read Timothy and Titus because they give us instruction in terms of church structure. You know how how the church is to be organized, who some of the what some of the roles are in mind there. 
But when it comes to Philemon, we, we, we just kind of overlook it. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. I think, number one, uh, it deals with the uncomfortable subject of slavery. You know, it, it is written concerning that issue, and in particular, one slave and his master. And, and just that fact in and of itself kind of, I'm not really sure how to deal with that. Uh, with those issues and those questions. I think another thing is it, it's only 25 verses long, you know, and something that's only 25 verses long can't be that important, can it? <laughs> you know, right? Uh, I think those kind of thoughts sometimes uh, go through our head or, or motivate us. And, and and I think a third reason is that the theology is not overtly evident. You know, when you read Romans or Galatians or Thessalonians, I mean, Paul says some things there, presents some theology there that, I mean, it's just real clear. This is what I want you to understand about God. This is what I want you to understand about you. This is what I want you to understand about your relationship. It's just really clear. And Philemon doesn't have that. There, there's not an easy one, two, three points in the book of Philemon about God or about his nature or those sorts of things. And so we kind of move away from those things. We kind of move away from, from this text. But I, I, I want to suggest this morning, that it really is a gift. This this letter, this book, really is a gift because it's a look into the heart of the apostle. Paul writes this letter at a very difficult time in his life. He's in prison. And I, I've noted before several times, and I think this is kind of a, a given, you, you really want to know what someone's like, look at what they're like in the difficult times? What comes out when the pressure is put on? Okay. And that's Paul in this environment. He's in a high-pressure situation. He's, he's imprisoned. Now, we don't know exactly where he's imprisoned. He doesn't tell us in his letter. There's, there's three positions on that in scholarship. Some argue this is uh, when he was in prison in Caesarea. If you remember, he's He's preaching in the, the temple, and uh, the Jews get uh, anxious about some of the things he's saying there, and he ultimately ends up being arrested because he's a troublemaker, so to speak. And he's in prison for a time in Caesarea, which is there in Israel, the, the northern part of it, Caesarea Maritima. And so some think that's when he's writing this. Others say, no, this is during his, his Roman imprisonment. Um, after he leaves Caesarea, he sails to Rome because he appeals to Caesar. He wants to, as a Roman citizen, he has a right to, to be heard before Caesar himself. And he, he makes that appeal. And so he sails. If you remember, he, he's involved in a shipwreck on that trip and so forth. But he eventually ends up in Rome. And he ends up at that time under house arrest. Um, and some think that's the imprisonment that's in mind here. And, and then there's a third view that, that's not really ever expressed in the Bible, but it's it, it's probably the most common view for this, and that is that he spent some time in jail while he was in Ephesus. During uh, one of his missionary journeys, he, uh, the supposition is that he was probably arrested in Ephesus and spent some time there. And the reason that that's usually held as the most likely, even though we don't have any biblical evidence for it, uh, in terms of explicit storying, explicit telling us that this happened, uh, is that uh, he seems to be in very close proximity to the churches he's writing to during this time. 
In other words, physically, he seems to be not too far from the churches he's writing to. And that doesn't fit for Rome or Caesarea, but it does fit for Ephesus. Regardless, it is certainly a, a difficult time. It's, it's, it's anytime you're in prison, obviously, it's going to be a difficult time. But prison in, in Rome was, was never a, a good thing. It was never a, uh, an easy thing, even for Roman citizens. Uh, usually prison was a pit. It was a hole that had been dug out, a cave or something like that it had been used in, in that sense. Not always, but quite often it was. Uh, usually the, the food and water that you were provided was just at the whim of the guards. Okay, If they wanted to give you food and water, they would if they didn't. If they forgot, oh well, you're a prisoner. That's just how it goes. Uh, and, and so it was, it was a very difficult situation. If you did not have people who would come and visit you, who would provide food and water and those sorts of things, it, it was even worse. Uh, luckily, we know from the context here, some of the things that Paul says that he had people with him. Timothy is, in fact, with him uh, uh, as part of that. And that's another reason people think it's Ephesus, because Timothy pastored the church in Ephesus. And so, Timothy seems to be in close proximity to, to minister to him. But Paul's in this really difficult situation, and then another added feature is brought upon him. A man named Onesimus, uh, who is a slave of a man named Philemon, has come to be with Paul in prison. He, he's, he's, he's pursued Paul in some way, and we'll talk more about that in, in the coming weeks, but he's pursued Paul in some way to... To, to reach out to him, to connect with him. And Paul is writing to Philemon on Onesimus' behalf. Okay, So you have this slave who's come to Paul, who's, who's reached out to Paul for assistance in some way, in terms of some things that he's done, or uh, in terms of his relationship to Philemon. And Paul is writing this letter. And so this letter, it, it's very personal. Uh, Paul talks about the, the, the connection he has with Philemon, the connection he has with Onesimus, the connection he has with the church there in Colossae where uh, Philemon lives. Um, the letter is very passionate. Paul feels deeply about the things that he's addressing. These, these mean something to him. Um, the letter is very daring. Paul takes some risk in some of the things he says, some of the, the expressions he communicates to Philemon uh, just in terms of the context. Um, and it is personally and culturally challenging. And so it is, it is one of those letters that, that really gives us a glimpse into the heart of the apostle, really helps us kind of see what really are his priorities, what, what, what is coming out of him in this time of pressure and difficulty. So over the next three weeks, we're going to be digging into this personal letter of Paul. We're going to be looking at it and, and trying to discern some implications for our lives. Today, I want to look at the relationship between Paul and Philemon that made such a letter a reality. You don't write a letter like this to just anybody. You know, um, generally when you're writing to, to someone who you're only vaguely uh, acquainted with, it takes on a very different feel from somebody you, you've known for a time or somebody that uh, you're connected with. Okay, 
you, you use different verbs, you use different nouns, you use different expressions. And there is clearly an intimacy at work between Paul and Philemon in this letter. It, it's unmistakable. There, there's a connection between these two men. There, there's a history to some degree between these two men. But it's not a history, it's not a connection born of long-standing relationship. These, these are not two men who have known each other for a long time. This is a, this is a connection that, that's born out of their relationship with Jesus. The reason Paul can write what he writes, the reason Paul can connect the way he connects and, and so forth with Philemon is because they're both believers. And I would venture to say that that's among the most important connections we can have with somebody. To, to understand our relationship in light of what Jesus has done. And that, that's what's motivating Paul. That's what's motivating the connection. That's what, that, what's driving his observations. And so I want to look just at the, at the first part of uh, the letter today. Uh, really verses 1 through 7 is what we're going to be looking at. Beginning in verse 1, we, write, we read, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the opening to the letter follows traditional openings to such letters in the Roman culture. I don't know uh, about y'all, but when I was in high school, I, uh, I took typing, okay, as one of my classes, and, and one of the parts of typing, you know, obviously it was finger position and all that stuff, that was, that was a big deal, but, it, but one of the other parts of typing was that different letters had different forms. If you were writing this type of letter, it would have a certain form, you know, this, you'd follow this pattern. And you write in this type of letter, it followed this pattern. You know, where do you use dear? When do you use sincerely? When do you use, you know, all those sorts of things. And, and uh, we were evaluated on how well we memorized and knew that form. Well, it turns out that's not a modern convention. That's something that goes back to the time of Paul. That they had certain forms, certain things that were very common in their letters. And we have dozens, hundreds of letters from this era. And they all follow the same pattern. They have the same words, same introduction style. They have you know, the same content, all these other things. Now, obviously, they're not going to be the same letters because they're, each letter is dealing with something different. But they're all going to follow the same form. And Paul follows that form, but he makes a few changes to the form. And, and in those changes, um, we see the nature of... Um, his relationship with Philemon. We see the nature of his relationship with, with Christians as a whole. Um, and we see, I believe, something of the importance of what Paul's saying here to us. And I think the first thing we see is that though society attempts to rank us, friendship in Christ requires us to see each other on level ground. The world we live in requires certain roles, certain ranks. In order for order to exist in any organization, you know, there's, there's generally got to be a boss, you know, and, and then some underbosses, if you will, and workers and so forth to, to, 
to organize the thought, to move forward. And, and generally, you, you enter into chaos if, you know, one person in that lower rank's not really doing what the person in the higher rank wants. And you enter into all sorts of problems and issues there. Society in a fallen world where each is kind of seeking their own way and each is kind of driven by their own motivation, it requires that sort of rank. It requires that sort of organization for things to work. You know, if, if we existed in in Eden and we had some of the same organization, I, I, I venture to guess it would be very different in how it appears because we all wouldn't be out for ourselves in that sort of environment. And so while there may be different roles still in place, it, it certainly would, I don't think it would play out the same way. And so in the Roman culture, it was customary when you wrote a letter to start with an introduction of the writer. That's the very first thing in, in every letter from Rome is, this is me. This is who's writing this letter. And notice how Paul introduces himself here. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. A prisoner for Christ Jesus. This is the only time in all of Paul's letters that he uses that descriptor of himself, that description in the introduction. Usually it's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Okay, That's, it. That's his most common introduction of himself. Why? Because he's writing to a church, he's writing to an environment where he needs to assert his authority. He needs them to listen to what he's saying. You know, there's, there's people in those churches who are challenging some of the some of his previous teachings. They're challenging some of his, his previous explanations of how God works and how faith works and how grace works. There's people who are, who are questioning those things and who are, who are causing difficulties. And so Paul starts those letters with, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Listen up, folks. I'm an apostle here speaking. I'm not just some person off the street. Okay. But here, he starts with Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And I think a, a big part of what Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to associate himself with both the subjects of his letter. That is both Philemon and Onesimus. He's trying to connect with both. With Philemon, I think a big part of what he's saying here is, I'm not going to use my apostolic authority in this situation. That's not how I'm coming at you. I could, and he'll say that a little later in the letter. If I wanted to, I could order you to let Onesimus free. I got that power. But Paul wants to set the tone real early here that that's not how he's coming at this. He's not coming at this as this authority figure who's telling Philemon what he needs to do. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is again in the weeks ahead. But... Uh, the whole method of his argument here. But he's trying to, I think, connect with Philemon on, on, on even ground. He's trying to say, we're both fellow believers here. Okay. With Onesimus, um, I'm, just a, I'm a prisoner just as you are. Now, many believe that Onesimus would actually be re the one reading this letter to the church. Okay. Uh, this letter was probably written at almost the exact same time, perhaps the exact same time as the, the letter to the Colossians. 
And we know from the letter to Colossians that Onesimus played a role in reading that letter. And so many believe that he's going to read this letter too. So imagine Onesimus standing up in front of the church to read a letter from Paul to Philemon and the rest of the household saying, this is how you need to treat Onesimus. Okay, that, that's, that's quite, quite a challenge. And so Paul needs to not only speak to that audience, to that household, to that church, he needs to speak to Onesimus too. He needs to reassure him too. He needs to connect with him too. This is a man who is a slave. This is a man who society has said doesn't quite measure up to other people in society. And Paul says, Onesimus, I'm a prisoner too. While our experiences are not exactly the same, I can connect with you. And it doesn't just it doesn't just happen in this one sentence, in this one introduction. Throughout the book, Paul uses terms that are kind of unique. In, in verse 9, he refers to himself as, I'm just an old man. I'm just an old man writing this. I'm an elder, you know, guy. I'm not anything all that significant. It, he, in both in verses nine and ten, again, he uses the word prisoner. He describes himself as a prisoner once again. Comes back to that idea. Uh, to Onesimus in verse ten, he calls him. He says, "I am Onesimus's father. I'm his parent." In verse 16, he says, I'm Onesimus' brother. To Philemon, he addresses him in a variety of ways as brother, fellow minister, partner, future guest. I'm, I'm a future guest in your home. Throughout the letter, Paul is, is very much centered on this level playing ground using these terms that he never once talks about himself as, as the apostle. He hints at it in, in a couple places. I, I could order you to do this if I wanted to, but he never once uses that term overtly. He wants his readers to understand the level ground on which they stand. That in Christ, what? There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither male nor female. There's neither free nor slave. What he says in Galatians. He's playing that out. Those weren't just words for Paul in Galatians. That's how he actually felt. And you see that manifested here. You see it in, in the introduction. One more time. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Timothy, our brother. Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. To Aphia, our sister. Now, we don't know exactly who Aphia and Archippus are. Some argue, one traditional view is that she's Philemon's wife and Archippus is their son. Uh, others say they're just other leaders in the church there at Colossae. We don't actually know beyond that who they were. But there's something that really stands out here in terms of him addressing her. He calls her our sister. Now, in our culture, in our environment, we, we kind of read that and we just kind of move on because we talk about we're all brothers and sisters here, right? That's kind of our, our thing, you know. 
Uh, we don't generally call people sister like we used to. I think it used to be much more common uh, in, in certain Baptist circles, especially to call somebody the sister whatever, use their name. You know, but we we've gotten kind of kind of gotten away from that. But in their culture, this is extraordinary. You see, in Roman letters, in the in the broader Roman culture and so forth, using the term brother for someone was everywhere. It was very common to to refer to someone as your brother. It was it was just part of the language, brother this, brother that, you know, all this sort of thing. But Using the term sister was almost unheard of in letters. Even in places and circumstances where women held some level of power or authority, they generally were not identified as sisters in terms of this sort of connectiveness. It just wasn't part of Roman culture. And so for Paul to throw that in here in this introduction is for Paul to to make a very big statement to that congregation. Not only am I on equal ground with Philemon, I'm on equal ground with Avia. There truly is, in Christ, no male or female. There is this level ground at the foot of the cross. We all stand there in need of Jesus. We all stand there and work together. And so Paul, in his introduction, he's just making a few changes. He's already started to, to, to cut through some of the societal norms, some of the, the expectations and understanding of, of their culture and how people are different. He's trying to say, Jesus makes a difference. And he's going to draw on that later when he makes his case for Onesimus. A second thing we see here is that though we can be close to others outside of Christ, it's only in Christ that we can experience a relationship that truly transforms us on the inside and out. And what I mean by that is simply this. It's, it's, it's possible. It's not just possible. It, it's um, fairly common to be close to people who are not Christians and people who are not Christians to have close relationships with each other. You know, that, that's, that's a part of humanity. We are in our creation. We are, com- we are people for community. That's how God made us. And that exists even apart from a a relationship with Jesus. It's embedded in us. The image of God persists in who we are. And so because of that, we're made for community. So it's possible to be close to people who are not believers. It's possible for non-believers to be close to each other. But it's only a relationship that's embedded within Christ that truly transforms our, our total being. Every relationship changes you a little. Every relationship affects you on some level, but only those relationships that are in Christ do we truly experience the full transformation. And this plays out in this introduction with the words grace and peace. Now, Paul starts most of his letters with these these words, grace and peace to you in Christ Jesus. But what's interesting is how he uses each of those, he uses those terms differently in each of his letters. But at the heart of them is a reality of the Christian life and what it means. Grace here is interesting because Paul makes, Paul makes two alterations in his use of grace here. 
to the again to the normal Roman letter, the normal form that was prevalent in their society. Paul changes two things here. Number one, in Roman letters, you would generally start with the word Kyrene, okay, which means good health. Okay. But he takes that word Kyrene and he changes it to charis, grace. So he, he takes a, a normal word and he substitutes his own that sounds almost just like it to, to add this emphasis that what I'm trying to tell you, what I'm trying to communicate to you, what I'm trying to relate to you is more than just well wishes. It's more than just may you have a good life. It's more than I wish you good health. I want you to understand the depth of grace. That in Christ, grace is at work. A second alteration he makes is in Jewish letters within the Roman culture. Jews would follow the, the Roman culture as well. But in Jewish letters, they generally began with mercy and peace. And Paul, in, instead of going with mercy and peace, he says grace and peace. Now what's the difference and, and why is that important? Mercy is simply, you deserve judgment, and I'm not going to exact that judgment. That's mercy. It's very closely related to grace, but grace adds another dimension to the fact that God's not going to exact his judgment, and that is that grace empowers the recipient. Grace is not just a passive withholding of judgment. Grace is an active imputation and an active engagement with that person saying, not only am I not going to judge you, I'm going to change you. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to make you into a new creature. I'm going to bring you to a new life, to a new existence, to a new outlook, worldview. I'm going to do all of these things in your life and in your existence. And so Paul wants his audience to understand, many of whom in Colossae would have been Jews, I'm not just talking about mercy here. Mercy is not just about God saying, I'm not going to judge you for that sin. I'm talking about grace that so changes you that it leads you toward a reciprocal action. In other words, if you show mercy to someone, they may or may not show mercy to others. You would expect it, you would hope it, but it's, it's not necessarily going to be there. But when you show grace to somebody from a biblical standpoint, that sort of reciprocity, that sort of reaction is going to be present. When grace is present, things change. And it drives people to a new situation because it empowers them to do that. Mercy doesn't necessarily empower. It might free you to some degree, but it doesn't empower you necessarily. Grace empowers. And Paul wants Philemon, Paul wants his audience to understand that in the process of this exchange, in all the things we're going to discuss about Onesimus and this whole situation, I'm going to put forward some challenges. And I want you to understand that in putting forward those challenges, grace is what's going to be necessary for you to carry them out. You're going to need that empowerment from God, that transformation from God. 
And as we live and as we work and as we function, we need grace to be able to interact with people the way we're supposed to. Without it, we'll be on our own. The second word, peace, is an inner and relational wholeness. That's what the word means. It's the idea of being complete. It's not just the cessation of difficulties and hardships. It's, I want you to be whole. I want you to be complete. I want you to experience all that life has to offer. And it's only when we're whole, only when we're complete, that we can truly begin to show grace and mercy and, and all these other attributes, faith, love, hope, joy, that Christianity calls us to. Because if we're not whole, then what? We're going to be seeking for that, seeking that wholeness. We're going to be seeking that something to fill in those, those gaps. But if we experience this peace, if we experience this wholeness through God, then we're truly free to act on these other parts of who God has called us to be. And so Paul wishes this grace and peace. He, he, he heightens the relationship in a way that only believers can experience. Because apart from a relationship with Christ, we're not going to be whole. We're not going to be complete. We're not going to be free. We're not going to be able to truly express grace. We're, every relationship is going to be about what it gives to me, not what I can do for others as well. And Paul says that this grace and this peace can only happen in Christ Jesus. That through Jesus, we have this connection with God, which makes us whole. The third thing that's here is that connections through Christ are a source of real thankfulness. Verses 4 through 7. Paul says, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I pray that you particip your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. This is, again, one, another one of those components of a Roman letter. If you often express thankfulness for the person you're writing to. It's a very common part of their introduction. And we see it in most of the letters that Paul wrote. Galatians is one of the big exceptions. He has no prayer of thankfulness there. He's a little more upset with them than that in that particular letter. But the thankfulness here is what? It's expanded, it's expressed, it's, it's, it's embedded what? In a relationship with Jesus, in the theology of who Jesus is. Now my translation unfortunately says, because I hear of your love, Paul actually says there, I remember your love. And that word, I remember, is such a big biblical concept. Throughout the Old Testament, you hear the prophets, you hear the, the leader saying, Oh God, please remember your covenants. Please remember your relationship. Remembrance in the biblical sense is a covenantal expression asking the person to, to act on that, 
And what Paul is saying here is not just that I've heard of your love or it's come to my ear that, that, that you're expressing love and that you're living the right way. He's saying, I know that your love grows out of the covenant relationship you have with Christ. And because of that covenant relationship that you have with Christ, you have a covenant relationship with me. And with, guess who? Onesimus, as he's going to get to in a little bit in his letter. And because of that covenant connection, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the relationship we can have. I'm thankful for the way we can walk and journey in this life together. I'm thankful that even though I'm here in prison, I know the gospel's proceeding. It's active. It's at work there in Colossae. It's at work in your life. It's at work in your house. I'm thankful that I'm not in this journey alone. I'm thankful for the effective work of God in lives, that my preaching is not in vain, that my belief and my worship is not for nothing. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul challenges the church to outdo one another in showing honor. So it's really the only competition we're allowed to have in, as believers amongst ourselves. Usually we're told, don't, you know, be humble. Don't, don't compete with others. But in chapter 12 of Romans, Paul says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you compete. This is how I want you to compete. I want you to see who can outdo the other in showing each other honor. And you see that played out here again in Paul's letter. You see him express tact, which is Minimizing the cost to Philemon. In other words, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to, to lift you up by, by trying to, to ask as little of you as possible. Okay. You see his generosity where he's maximizing the cost to himself. I, I, I want in this, in, a, in this activity, in this interaction, I want to, to pour as much as myself as I can. Even though I'm in prison, even though I'm in chains, even though I'm in hard situations, I'm going to still give everything I can to this relationship, to this environment. You see him expressing admiration where he, he praises Philemon over and over and over again. In just 25 verses, the amount of praise he lays on Philemon is astounding. You see him express modesty as he minimizes his self-praise. All the times in this sentence where he could have said, or in this letter where he could have said, well, I did this, and I did that, and I, you know, I'm just the greatest person ever. Paul minimizes that. You see him expressing agreement. You see him expressing sympathy. He is pouring into Philemon in this moment. And that's only possible because of his authentic thankfulness for the connection they have through Jesus. I'm convinced that the church would be an entirely different entity today if we truly became not just thankful for what God has done for us, but thankful for the people that God has brought around us. Truly thankful. Too often we, we get wrapped up in, in, as we talked about last week, covetousness, jealousies. Well, why do they get that and I don't? Why are they experiencing that and I'm not? Instead of 
wow, I'm so glad God is working in their life and what God's doing there. How is any of this thankfulness? How is any of this level playing ground? How is any of this transformative work possible? It is through grace. In verse 25, the last verse, Paul once again ends with a wish, with a prayer for grace for the people there in this church. May God shed His grace on you. Why? Because He's reminding them here at the end that it's only through the grace of God that any of this can be experienced. That any of this is going to play, play out the proper way. Because no doubt, in that church, there were probably sides being taken about this whole Philemon Onesimus thing. Some were like, well, Onesimus, he's, he's a believer. He should have this, 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 and this. And some were like, well, Philemon, he's the master. He has the rights and he has the responsibility and he has this, this, and this. We'll talk about that more next week. Undoubtedly, that was very much on the minds of everybody in this church. And so Paul challenges this letter to be read to everybody to what? To say to them, in grace, we can find an answer. In the fact that we didn't deserve what God gave to us, we can find a direction. And the fact that I really don't have any rights in and of myself, all I have is what God has given me. We can find a direction, we can find an answer. If we all began to work that way, began to function that way, it would totally transform the way we interact with one another. My prayer today is that each of us would truly begin to understand and appreciate the depth of grace and what it brings to our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person here. I thank you for your grace, your boundless, wonderful, overwhelming grace that does more than we can imagine, more than we deserve. And that calls us to engage our culture in a meaningful way. Lord, I ask that uh, you continue to, to work in our hearts and minds. Help us to be a church, a people who are gracious to each other. Who are revealing your goodness to a world that doesn't even recognize goodness sometimes. God. As the children sing, let us be your hands and your feet and your mouth to proclaim the truth, to walk and live in grace. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.